Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that your word might speak to us today. Lord, you know all that will sit under the hearing of this word. Lord, those who are present here in this moment to hear it preached. Those who are outside, Lord, in cars listening on the broadcast. And others, Lord, who will listen to it. Some perhaps half a world away. Some perhaps years from now. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit you might bring forth fruit. Lord, you have promised that your word does not return to you void. And Lord, we place our faith upon the promises of your word and trust, Lord, that you will use this word to bring forth fruit in our lives. Lord, this we ask and we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we met Naaman, a big man, towering in power, towering in pride, and at one point towering in wrathfulness and rage because Elisha, the prophet of Israel, did not even come to the door but sent his servant with the instruction, go and dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you will be well. And he almost went home with leprosy and all of his money, but his servants persuaded them, my Lord, would you not have done a difficult thing if it had been asked of you? And yet this simple thing you will not do. And so Naaman had gone down and in faith had gone into that river and had dipped himself seven times and came up, and the scripture says, with with a skin like that of a little child. And this is where we pick up our story today. Uh, In verse 15, we read this, then he returned To the man of God, he and all his company, the whole entourage is there, the chariots and the horses and the servants and the bags of gold and the bricks of silver and all that he's brought with him, the whole entourage. And he came and he stood before him and he said, now hear these words. These are the words of a a polytheist, right? There There is in the ancient Near East all sorts of gods. Uh, There's uh, Baal, Shalisha, there's uh, Baal, oh, I can't remember the name, Zephon, uh, Baal Zebul, remember that guy? There's all these Baals, there's Ashtoreths, there's all sorts of gods, there's Moloch, and all of these ancient Near Eastern Syrians and Canaanites and Moabites, they've got no issue at all having one more god. They've got no issue at all having one more god. It's just one more in the pantheon of deities. But listen to what he says. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This is, this is the sign of a true conversion. This is not a man who is just adding one more God and just saying, I've got a little bit more spirituality. This is a man who is turning aside from everything he has known. And he says, there's no God in Syria. Uh, There's no God in Canaan. There's no God in Moab, but the one true God, the God of Israel. And then he goes on to say this. So now accept a present from your servant. This is how much this is worth to him. He's, He's prepared to lay down a vast fortune in gratitude. And we get this surprise because uh, the response that comes is no. Uh, Verse 16. But he said, this is Elisha, as the Lord lives, 
It's interesting. He bows, he swears before God. He takes the name of the Lord, not in vain. He says, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. I think that's very significant that Elisha should say, by, by this God that we are speaking of, the one true God, I will take nothing from you. And, and Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Keep that in mind. Elisha has said, by the Lord, I will take none. Now realize, there's still a famine in the land. There are people who do not have enough to eat. There are prophets who do not have enough to eat. And lest you think that Elisha is a man who never, ever, ever is willing to receive a gift from anybody, just in the last chapter, a man far less wealthy than Naaman the Syrian, a farmer from Baal Shalisha, came with 20 loaves of barley and all of his first fruits and gave it to Naaman, and Naaman received the gift gratefully. So it's not that Naaman refuses to take a gift, but he refuses to take this gift. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul. This is an interesting thing. When you think about this, the Apostle Paul, it, there are times when the Apostle Paul receives a gift with gratitude. Think about this in, in the book of Philippians. He writes to the Philippians. This is in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I received in the Lord greatly... I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. This is addressing the Philippians. They have sent to him a gift that has covered his need, his financial need. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So get this in your mind. Here's the Apostle Paul who, who says to the Philippians, I have received with gratitude the gift that you've sent, and it's not that you've sent one gift, but you have sent again and again and again. You have sent sacrificially. You have sent through Epaphroditus himself who came sacrificially. And Paul says, I was grateful to receive the gift. Uh, this was a necessity, and you have met my necessity. And, and this is very interesting when we compare it with the Corinthian church, which is a far wealthier group of people. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we read this. Uh, Paul says to them, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And we read that line again because this tells you what's going on here. 
We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel? Right, so let's start this out. So to the Philippians, Paul says to them, I have received your gift with gratitude and it has met my need. I know how to be in want. I know how to abound. Uh, God is able to provide for my every need, but it is with gratitude that I receive this gift and send you my thanks. To the Corinthians, he says, even though it is right, that, that the one who preaches should be supported, he says, I will not take it from you. And you, why won't he take it from the Corinthians? Because Paul realizes that with the Corinthians, it would corrupt the gospel. They, they would, it would become a stumbling block to them. They would somehow equate that with, we have placed God in our debt. We have given God a payment. We have said something to do with our salvation. Whereas the Philippians have no confusion uh, on this count. And I think the same thing is going on here with Naaman and Elisha. Um, this is, by the way, why it is right that churches financially support their pastors, but also why it is right that we don't ask mission fields or church plants to support their pastors in the same way, because we don't want to confuse the gospel. We don't want people to think... You see this sometimes, this baffles me, when you go into some old cathedral and, and there's a bunch of candles there that, you know, presumably you can light a candle to have somebody pray for you or to pray yourself, but there's a, a donations box. I think that confuses the gospel. As soon as you equate, I give money in order to light this candle, you know. Um, when, when we used to pass the offering plate, those of you who were part of the church here know, and I used to frustrate I used to frustrate a few people when I'd say this because they would say, why do you say that? And I would say, if you're a visitor with us today, please don't feel any compulsion at all to put any money in this offering plate. This is a, an act of worship engaged in by the members of this congregation. We don't want to confuse the idea that the gospel is for sale, that, that, that God is for sale, that, that you can have these things, but there's some expectation that you're going to pay for them at some point. And Elisha doesn't want Naaman to go back to Syria and say, yeah, I was cured of my leprosy and I thought the cost small. It just cost me a king's ransom. He says, by the Lord, I won't take a cent. It is free. It is without cost. I give it to you freely. So then Naaman makes another request. Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant, two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any God but the Lord. 
In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, and the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. What are we to make of these two final requests? They're both a little strange to our ears. Both a little strange to our ears. The first, uh, I don't think this is a superstitious idea about the soil of Israel being sacred, but it is more likely, I think, the idea that Naaman wants to remember vividly what has happened here. And when he goes home, he talks about offering sacrifice. I will only offer sacrifice and burnt offering to the God of Israel. This is, again, so twice now, he has made very clear, there is no God in all the world but the God of Israel, and now I will offer no sacrifice but to the God of Israel. And what do you offer sacrifice on? You offer sacrifice on an altar. I think that he's taking two mule loads of earth home because he wants to build an altar, and you need earth to make bricks with. And I think that's probably what is in Naaman's mind, is I want to build this altar from the soil that I dug up right here where the Lord healed me. This second, though, is very strange, and the commentators aren't too sure what to do with it. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what to do with it either. Um, It's part of his responsibility to escort the king of Syria into the pagan temple of Rimmon and to kneel by his side as he worships this idol. And he asks the Lord's pardon in this act, Already he's made a double commitment. I I, I don't see this as being a softening of his commitment. He has said very clearly, there is no God but the God of Israel. There is no God but Yahweh. Rimon is no God. I will offer no sacrifice to any God but Yahweh. I offer no sacrifice to Rimon. And yet there is this responsibility I have as the king's second in command to escort him into the temple of Rimon and bow down. And this is one of those ones that I would like to spend a little bit more time digging in and reading further. Because I, I, I'll say this much, and then this is a little rabbit trail, and then we'll come away from it. Um, I cannot agree with the commentator who wants to criticize this, because in the end, Elisha says, go in peace. And I think when we try to force the scriptures to say what we think the scriptures should say, that sets up a very bad precedent, which will lead us down some really bad roads. So in spite of the fact that I've got some good commentators who want to criticize and say he shouldn't have asked that and Elisha shouldn't have granted it, he did ask it and Elisha did grant it, and the Lord knows. I don't think that's normal uh, practice, but that is the practice that happened there. But we've got one other character in our story here. We've had an ample opportunity to get to know this guy, Gehazi. He's kind of around in the scene. Now, who was Elijah's servant? Elijah's servant was Elisha, right? For 10 years, Elisha poured water on the hands of Elijah. Elisha had ample opportunity to see the Lord's working through the mighty power of Elijah. When Elijah is carried away in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire, It's Elisha who cries out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. I mean, he is deeply and profoundly impacted. It's Elisha, the servant of Elijah, who says, when he is asked, what shall I give you, Elisha? Elijah says, what shall I give you? What does Elisha ask for? 
flocks and herds and vineyards and servants and oxen. And no, he says, I give to me a double portion of your spirit. I want to be like you. I want to do what you did. So this is Elijah with Elisha, his 10-year servant. Now we have Elisha and his servant is Gehazi. And sadly, Gehazi is not quite as noble as Elisha. We have seen Gehazi uh, when the widow woman whose son has died, when she falls at Elisha's feet and is trying to cling to his feet, he's there, got her by the ankles, trying to pull her away and say, what's the matter with you? Stop grabbing onto the prophet. And Elisha has to rebuke him and say, can you not see she's in great distress? And it's Gehazi who runs with Elisha's staff all the way to the dead boy and places the staff upon his body and waits And it's Gehazi who is there and sees the dead boy raised up by the power of God. He sees that miracle. It was Gehazi who tried to talk Elisha out of dividing the 20 loaves that he received amongst 100 men. He said, this is not enough. We can't put this out there in front of these guys. It's enough for us. You kind of get a sense of who Gehazi is uh, when he looks on this food in this way. But he's there when the food is enough. And more than enough, he sees that miracle. And it was Gehazi who had carried the message to Naaman to go bathe seven times in the Jordan and be clean. And who obviously in that moment looked out at all the pomp and circumstance before him, all the bags of gold and the the bricks of silver, the garments that had been brought, the servants and the chariots and the chargers and the great man in his uniform. And it was Gehazi Now, who thinks to himself, I could do better for myself. If Elisha were in the place of Elijah and were to say to his servant Gehazi, what shall I give you now, Gehazi? Gehazi would not say a double portion of your spirit. Gehazi says, I've had enough of this life. Give me a pile of money. This is the text. Verse 19, middle of verse 19 But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, and I think you can hear a sneer in his voice when he says this. Just look how he says it. See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. It's this Naaman the Syrian. This foreigner, this outsider who has just received this enormous blessing, who has just had his life transformed, and, and, and my master has spared this Syrian. What's the next line? As the Lord lives. We've heard that, right? Who said that? Elisha said that just a moment ago, right? As the Lord lives. Elisha has made a vow before God. I will receive none of this. I want no stumbling block in the gospel. I want no misunderstanding about the grace of God, about the free gift of God. I don't want you to go home and say, God did a mighty deed and I paid richly for it. As the Lord lives, I will receive nothing. I think this makes this act even more reprehensible because this is Gehazi taking the Lord's name in vain. He swears a vow. Why would he do it? As the Lord lives, I will run after him. And get something from him. And so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? 
That, that shows a change, I think, already wrought in the heart of Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian, who was in towering rage that he should not meet the prophet, but was instead sent a, sent a, a servant just a few hours earlier, now sees that same servant coming after him, and it's, Geha- uh, it's Naaman himself that gets down. He could have sent down a servant to find out what that guy wants. But he stops the chariot. He gets down himself. It's all well. It's all well. This is a changed man. And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. So what does Gehazi do? Uh, Gehazi tells a lie here, but he doesn't just tell a lie. He implicates his master, Elisha, in the lie. He implicates God in his lie. He implicates the sons of the prophets in his lie. Naaman is only too happy to comply. He hears of a need. A talent of silver is needed, two changes of clothing. He doubles the gift and he urges it upon him. And Gehazi, you know, I think probably just bargains just right. So he's like, no, no, no. Okay, well, maybe sure. (laughs) See what his sinful desire leads him to. New Testament tells us this. Each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desires. I don't know. I don't know what tempts you. I know what tempts me though. I know the cheese. That the devil sets on the trap for me. And the devil sets his trap well. He, he, he knows how to tempt you. He knows how to put something in front of you. And it is not a sin. In, a, in and of itself. To be tempted. Like what Martin Luther once said, he said, no man can stop birds from flying over his head, but he can surely keep them from making a nest in his hair. Right? There's a difference between temptation. Temptation will come. You're going to have temptation this week. You might have temptation today. And you probably know right now what it will be that tempts you most. For Gehazi, it is wealth. It is avarice. It is more. It's not a sin for him to look at it and say, oh, wow, look at all that money. How much I would like some of that. That's not a sin. James 1.14 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's when he starts to collapse under that desire, that sinful desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now listen, different sins have different gestation periods. And in the case of Gehazi, his, the gestation period between desire, conception, growing up, and giving birth to death is very short. The punishment falls very quickly on Gehazi, but for many people, it is a longer gestation period. Sin brings forth more sin. Lies will bring forth more lies. Secrets will bring forth more secrets. Brother or sister or friend, if you are living today and you know that you are living with sin in your heart, I would urge you the only way to be rid of that is to repent of that, confess it, and turn away from it. 
If you're living with secrets in your life or lies in your life, you know right now these things will kill you. They will bring forth death to you. Break free from that. Do you not understand that you are here amongst brothers and sisters who love you and will receive you and accept you? And, and, and that this is a safe place for you to come and say, here's the, here's the sin I'm living in. Here's the lie I've been telling. Here's the secret that has gripped me for so long. But Gehazi keeps going down. And he, when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. And he went in and stood before his master. He begins with avarice, the desire for more. And he adds to his avarice the taking of the Lord's name in vain. And he adds to the taking of the Lord's name in vain, lying. And he adds to lyment now the concealment of his sin. And then he comes in before the eyes of his old master. And Elisha gives him one more opportunity. And understand, here's the opportunity to come clean. Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? I wonder what... Tone of voice he had. Or what look he had. You know your mother had that look, right? That way, if, I mean, it wasn't just a, what have you been doing today? It was, where have you been? You know, and you knew she knows something. My mother is down in Sunday school, so you can tell her I told this story, in this free confession. She always knew. She always knew. You know, every once in a while, my mother would say to you, Mark, what have you done? And you knew, she knew. And you tell her, and this was back in the 70s and 80s when she would say, then go and get me a, a wooden spoon. And you knew what that was going to be used for. I only found out later on, because this, in my wisdom as a, as a, as a child criminal, uh, when I did wrong, and I knew that I had done wrong, and I knew that I had done enough wrong to get the wooden spoon, uh, I went and took all the wooden spoons and hid them. And so only in retrospect do I discover that mother, when she's out there cooking the hot meal and reaching for a wooden spoon and finds the entire jar of wooden spoons has been emptied of wooden spoons, says, I wonder where all those wooden spoons went, you know. Mark, come here, you know. What have you done? Well, I was not a very good liar, you know. I knew at that point the gig was up, and so out came it, and then go find me a wooden spoon under a couch cushion and pull out the wooden spoon and bring it back. You know, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Jesus even says that. He says, we will give an account for every idle word we speak. He says, nothing will be hidden that will not one day be revealed. <laughs> Friend, don't wait. Don't hide it away. Don't think, I can just keep burying this forever and ever and ever. It will come out. Your sin will find you out. Better for Gehazi to have made a clean breast of it right here and said, this is what I've done. But instead, we get Gehazi again. Your servant went nowhere. But Elisha said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments? Olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. These are the things 
I think Gehazi has got in his mind, this is the dollar signs that pop up in his mind when he sees this vast amount of fortune. And he says, if I take this, not only will the famine not be an issue for me anymore, but, but I, I won't have to wait every day to see what the Lord provides for us. I can be independently wealthy. I can have my own servants. Was this the time? Was this the time, Gehazi, to do these things? What Gehazi doesn't even realize is, is he's ruined the picture uh, of the free grace that Elisha was determined that Naaman would go back to Syria with. And so, this is the judgment. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And so he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Jesus once said this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What a contrast is set up in this story between Naaman the Syrian and Gehazi the Israelite. And in conclusion, I just want to say a couple things about this. Um, You know Naaman shows up again in the New Testament. Um, Not physically, But Jesus speaks about Naaman. Jesus is in his hometown in Nazareth. And this is Luke chapter 4 verse 23. Jesus is speaking to them and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. This is the fury of Jesus' own people. The first time that somebody tries to kill Jesus is his hometown crowd. And why are they angry? It's because he points to them and he talks to them about the nature of free grace. He says, God is no man's debtor. God does not owe you something just because you were born, just because you breathe. Everything you have is a gift of God. God owes you nothing. Grace is a free gift. And he says to them, this is the This is the little trickle in the Old Testament. These are the first fruits. This is the evidence that that God's great plan is not uh, to redeem Israel. God's great plan is to redeem mankind. And he does it through Israel. Israel is a key part. You can't remove Israel. You can't disparage Israel. You ought not to disparage Israel. But understand, if you're stuck on Israel and you don't get to the rest, you have missed it. There's this little trickle going through the Old Testament. This little trickle. When you hear Jesus' genealogy, Bathsheba, who is married to Uriah the Hittite, is one of the women that is mentioned. Tamar, who is a Canaanite woman. Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. Rahab, who is a prostitute of Jericho. These are all in the line. This is the little trickle. This is the little first fruits. The widow of Zarephath. 
to whom God gives grace, even though she's not Jewish and doesn't have any, any standing in Judaism. Naaman, the Syrian, to whom God gives grace. Understand that Naaman is a picture of God's mercy, not only on Naaman, but on the Gentiles. It's a picture of God's intent that one day this little tiny trickle, this little first fruit is going to become a great stream that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is, is poured out, he's poured out on, on, in, in every tongue and in every language. And that Jesus sends his disciples out to preach the message to all nations. And so Naaman serves as a picture of God's mercy on the Gentiles. But if Naaman is a picture of God's mercy on the Gentiles, Gehazi serves as a warning first to the Jews, but I would say also to all of those who grow up under the hearing of the gospel. Has not Gehazi grown up in the very house of grace? Has he not heard Elisha the prophet preach? Has he not sat with the sons of the prophets at his feet and heard the messages? Has he not witnessed firsthand, been in the room when the miracles are done? Has he not had every, every opportunity to believe? And yet this man goes from the very family of grace to pursue some lesser thing. This is a message, first of all, and primarily to all who hear. Are you in danger of going the way of Gehazi? Are you tempted by avarice, the desire for more? That could tempt you away. Are you tempted to live a lie? These things can draw you away. Are you deceiving Elisha or deceiving the church? These things could draw you away. Repent while there is yet time and be restored. The scripture is true. The promise is true. If we confess our sins, say the scripture, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, Lord, many of us hail from the camp of Naaman the Syrian, Lord. We are not descended by blood from Abraham or from the patriarchs. Lord, we had no promises that were uttered to us of a land or a blessing. And yet, Lord, like wild olive branches, we have been grafted in and Lord, the blessings have flown to us. And for this, Lord, we are grateful. And I pray that you would help us to recognize the enormity of the grace we've been given. And Father, for the one who stands today in the place of Gehazi. Lord, who perhaps even trembles to hear it spoken of. Lord, I pray that you would make them sure that you know what you know. But Lord, rather than hearing in this some sort of judgment or shame, Lord, they would hear in this a plea and an opportunity, Father, to come to the God of all mercies, to make their sin known, to confess it, to receive with gratitude the forgiveness that you have promised, Lord, the promise that you make that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, these things I pray over this congregation and all who hear these words in Jesus' name.
Amen.